Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my uh, pleasure and a privilege to welcome back Travis Watts. Hi, Travis. Hey, Mike. How are you doing, man? Great to have you back. It's been a, it's been a little while, a um, couple of years, I guess. We, yeah. We COVID. Yeah, lots changed, man. Uh, last time we talked, you asked me about family stuff like that. So we just we uh, I became a father since last well, week. Congratulations! Spoke, so thanks, man. Eleven month. Uh, 11 month year old. It's hard to say. I, I can't wait till I can quit counting months and just say I have a one year old or two year old. <laughs> but yeah, man, and switched up to a director of investor education over at Ashcroft with Joe Fairless. So that's really my passion and what I really wanted to do out of the gate in 2019 when I came on board. And so I helped them build the investor relations side of the company. And so now I'm I'm finally out there doing a bunch of speaking events and more podcasts, stuff like that. So great to be here, man. Um, thanks for the invite back. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was going to do the introduction, but you did it. So I, I'm grateful for you uh, <laughs> providing the updates. Now you're more into investment education instead of investment relations. So yeah, um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, investor education. So what are you educating folks today? Obviously on the passing investing front, and uh, Joe is a big investor in the multifamily space. So what are you also seeing in the multifamily? What, 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 what are the changes that we are um, observing in the late 2022 and going into 2023? Sure. Yeah. Well, lots of changes, especially since last time we spoke. So I think we were all pretty uh, fearful at the time we recorded the last episode, still right in the heart and midst of the pandemic. Lots of investors kind of on the sidelines. Um, you know, a, a bit of a softening temporarily before the inflation stuff started kicking up. So I think the story for 2022 has been uh, a two-part, inflation and interest rates and how they coincide. You know, the Fed's been hiking rates to fight the inflation. So that affects everything. I mean, the worldwide economy is affected by that. Real estate's affected by that. But with what we focus on, which is value-add multifamily, where we're taking pre-existing properties that already have renters in place, and we're improving the properties and communities, and we're raising rents accordingly. A, the inflation is helping to justify a rent bump in addition to the value-add business plan. And so the way I look at it as an investor is, say the Fed raises rates 1%. Yeah, that hurts your potential sale price. They just got more expensive for your future buyer to buy your property. That's not a good thing, obviously. But at the same time, we're exceeding our pro forma on our projected rent bumps because a lot of these properties we bought in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. And so where we went in saying, hopefully we can lift rents 200 bucks a month over three to five years. We're already at you know 450 a month on a lot of properties and things like that. So uh, the name of the game and in, in value add, and I know you guys focus on other things, self storage and commercial. It's net operating income, right? People are always investors are always looking at what does this business produce for income, and I'm willing to pay a multiple of that to purchase it. So uh, it's kind of the yin and yang, right? We add millions of dollars of value by bumping rents. 
but then we get hit by the interest rates at the same time. So we're kind of in this equilibrium. So as far as my take on it, my philosophy on it, I'm a dollar cost average kind of investor. I'm in real estate for the long term. And so it's just like if you were to be an S&P 500 index fund investor, anytime you get a 10% softening or pullback, it's a buying opportunity, right? And so to use a little perspective, people were buying multifamily apartments in the early 1980s with 20% interest rates and they were cash flow positive. So you're just having to adjust pricing to accommodate. And so it's kind of a, a buy the dip sort of thing. And if we look back, one last thing on that note, 2008, nine and 10, the class B multifamily rents dropped a national average of about $125 per month. That was one of the worst real estate corrections that we've, uh, most of us have seen. I know I've seen in my lifetime. And so that's a little bit of perspective. We're buying a property at say 200 below market rents today. The worst that it got historically, at least in the last 50 so years, uh, was 125 a month rent drop. So if we can just get halfway through a business plan, we've got a little bit of a buffer and a shield. It doesn't make it foolproof. It doesn't make it recession proof, but it gives you a little bit more certainty than something that's brand new luxury, high end, renting at 5,000 a month. And then we go into a recession. You're more market uh, dependent at that point on that property, right? The economy has to keep going up. Wages have to keep going up for you to be able to pop your rents even higher. So that's the space I like to play in. I've been investing in that space many years. And that's what we do at uh, Ashcroft Capital. Thank you, Travis. That was that was great. A lot of great nuggets. Uh, so for all the checks that you have written or we have written uh, into multifamily and other commercial deals over the last few years, things have been great. Uh, it, it's hard to go wrong. Not a perfect world, of course, time to time is a difficult project, but the majority of the projects have done well. One of the key um, reasons, obviously, rent inflation has been really strong. So I'm completely in agreement with you. Everything you said makes sense. But on a forward basis, what's happening today? So the rates have gone up quite a bit. Uh, yeah. The last 12 months, the rates in many, in many aspects doubled. So the rate what folks were able to, to get on a multifamily asset versus what they can get today they're not, if they haven't doubled, they've gone up close to double. Right. So the rents have been going up for sure. Rent inflation has been a great help, but the rates have been going up at a much faster pace. So again, on a forward basis, on a past basis, I agree with you hundred percent on a forward yep. basis. Don't you have to buy better now? In other words, um, uh, are you seeing this in your ecosystem where what you were willing to pay for, let's just say 50 million before, and now you, you need to get it at 45 because mm -hmm. the rates have gone up. Are, are you observing that just as a way to um, compensate for the, uh, have already risen interest rates and then the forward projections that the rates are not done rising? So just, just, just trying to understand kind of philosophically, are you sitting and waiting for better deals or are you buying today? By the way, I, I love dollar cost over averaging. That whole approach makes sense. Buy today and buy in the future because you can't yeah. can time the market perfectly, right? So right. you don't time the market, you you have to keep investing over time. But yeah. um, what are your decisions today? Are you are you transacting if you, if you can get the discount or what happens if you can't get the discount but the rates are higher? It's a great question. And I think from my observation, what we're seeing is a lot of sellers a, a bit hesitant to discount 
largely on their properties, right? It still hasn't quite sunk in. These rates came up so fast. You know, we were at what, 3% rates a year ago, 6% rates now, sometimes higher depending on the asset class. So you do need that equilibrium at the same time as an investor. I think you have to kind of zoom out a bit and realize that, yeah, in, in 2015, if you were a limited partner, it wasn't uncommon to get a eight, nine, 10, 11% cash flow in year number one right out of the gate, but it's a compressed environment. Cap rates came down, institutions really started piling in. We just sold a, a handful of deals to a, a very large uh, Wall Street firm. And so it's a highly competitive space. Interest rates certainly have hurt and deal flow has slowed. I mean, really it has. 2020, it slowed a bit, but then picked back up in 2021. And now it's really slowed compared to 2021. So um, Ashcroft, we just closed fund number two. We closed seven deals uh, this year in 2022. The previous year we had done eight. And I believe the year before that we were up at eight. So it slowed a little bit in transaction volume. Thankfully, we acquired a lot early this year, uh, which comprised the bulk of that. So it'll be interesting to see. We're about to launch fund three. And I don't know. I mean, we always target six to 10 deals per year. But it's been very hard. I mean, we have to literally look at just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals just to get one and with the deal flow slowing. And, and also another thing I'll say about value add specifically, it wasn't uncommon, again, 2015, 2016, where you're finding these 200, 300, 400, 500 unit apartment buildings, 100% value add, right? These, these apartments haven't been touched in you know, 10, 15 years. We're seeing a lot less of that because a lot of people have entered into this value add space. And so they've mostly been renovated and turned at this point. So we're finding more of like a 50% value add opportunity where half the units were already turned by the previous ownership. So again, you know, reasons for real estate at large um, as compared to other asset classes, Great tax advantages. We still have 100% bonus depreciation this year, and it starts tapering off 80% next year, 60% the year after. But still, you got to zoom out and look that that's just the bonus depreciation that we're talking about. You still get a lot of great tax benefits. Monthly cash flow, at least we pay monthly. Some, some folks pay quarterly, but consistent reoccurring contractual income, right? People are paying to sign a lease. They're obligated to pay the lease. They they pay penalties if they break the lease. So you have a little more certainty over the money coming in that way. So uh, just a couple you know high level thoughts on there, and then the ability to to use leverage, right? To to lever up so that you know if you paid all cash for one of these properties, you might be getting a you know four percent annualized return. When you have a mortgage, you can bump that up to six, seven, eight percent potentially. So um, just you know, and it's a it, it's been an underserved niche, affordable housing in America has been behind in production since about the year 2000. It slowed down even more in 2008, 9, and 10, as you might imagine, when builders pulled out. It slowed down right in 2020 with the pandemic, right? And then it's still difficult to keep up. We're not keeping up. So this is a, a very um, necessary niche to be in. And so you know, again, I, I took the stance that if I'm going to become an expert in something, a professional in something, if I'm going to dedicate, you know, my life to something, it's going to have to be something sustainable and long-term. I'm not going to do this amount of work and research just to have to restart every three or four years with something new and trying to chase the shiny object. 
we got to remember that multifamily has been around for hundreds, thousands of years. As long as people paid rent somewhere, someone owned that property. So this is kind of a tried and true way, uh, true way of building wealth long-term. So I'm still bullish for the future. I do not think by any means to, to your point, Mike, that the last two years are going to be any reflection of the future. I still believe that there will be equity upside. I still believe there can be cash flow. Um, I just don't think we're going to see these, you know, 14 to 20% rent bumps nationwide. It's going to have to normalize at some point or nobody's going to have a, a place that they can afford in, in five years. Yeah. I agree with you. It's we're going to see some kind of reversion to the mean using the sophisticated right. terms, uh that uh, we've certainly outperformed the last few years, but in general, the current expectations have to come down as the rent growth has to come to more traditional uh, type of numbers in the three four percent range. Uh, yeah, the the double digit rent increases are not normal and typical, right? Uh, but they have been the case during the accelerated inflation, obviously. Yeah, we were always underwriting for, you know, two, three, four at most in, in depending on the market, 5% rent growth in a year. And to get 14 to 25 last year is just, to your point, very uncommon, not sustainable. And it seems scary to say, oh my God, you know, real estate's fallen, let's say 10% this year. Yeah, but it was up 30% last year. You know what I mean? We're still up. <laughs> you got to look at you know, if you had bought at the top of the market in 2006, you, you're probably double to triple your values today, right? Having gone through the Great Recession and making that recovery. So look at the long-term trend. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the, the words of the wise, the long-term trend, the long-term investing is truly is, is the only way to approach these projects. Even though uh, some of them could be uh, value-added or or flipped, evaluated and flipped in three, four years uh, at the same time, as long as it's a fundamentally good asset on a long-term basis, I agree with you. That then you, you, you can be patient. If you're investing in, into one of these projects, uh, you got to have the patient, even project might have projections or pro forma. Yeah. So a four years uh, schedule. Uh, my two cents is you have to be prepared to stay in for longer in case uh, the market does go through some kind of a cycle and it's not the right time to sell. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the forward basis? You're still buying because you're making long-term investment decisions. The other point you mentioned earlier, the cash flow is obviously has been substantially impacted. So for passive investors, and you're an educator of the passive investors, when they're coming into these multifamily assets, their cash flow expectations have come down quite a bit. I, I, I can't see how the cash flow can be anywhere close to what it was a year ago. So cash flow right. returns have substantially gone down. And um, what are you seeing out there today? Yeah, a, a couple of different things. One, to your point, um, we do as investors have to reset expectations as the, the economy does whatever it does, as real estate goes up and down. There's going to be times like 2012 was such a magical moment for <laughs> multifamily. I mean, double digit cash flows and you know 30 plus percent IRRs. It was just insane. But that was a moment in time, the same as, there was a time in America you could go put your money in the bank account and earn, you know, 10% interest. So times change, and so you have to adjust with them. So with that, one thing I always think about is when we're doing a value-add business plan, 
the idea is that your cash flow is increasing every year. So even though it may not look attractive year one and you're saying, wow, like, you know, 5% return, that's not impressive. Yeah, but then maybe it jumps to six or seven the next year and then it jumps to eight the following year and then to nine the following year as you're able to lift rents and build the net operating income, reduce expenses, all that kind of stuff. So I've always used the, what I call the 8% rule. I've always lived on in my portfolio an 8% annualized yield but that doesn't mean that every deal I do is 8% or greater. It means that I diversify. I'm a limited partner. I don't just do one thing. So for example, you have to be a little opportunistic. So there's some publicly traded REITs, real estate investment trusts that have been hammered this year because they're highly correlated to the stock market movements. So when the stock market's down 30%, some of these REITs are down 30, 40%. So what that means is their yield January 1st, 2022 could have been 6%, let's say. Well, now it's nine or 10. So if you're able to pick up a nine or 10 and then kind of diversify into a private placement at five or six, you can still maintain that eight potentially. And then we're not even talking about equity upside potential on both of those scenarios. So that's how I've looked at it. The simple math to me is, you want $100,000 a year in passive income, 1.25 million invested at 8% is $100,000. So you can break that down further and make that more achievable because I know that to some people may sound like a big goal that's that's hard to obtain. So take 100,000, divide it by 12 months. And so that's 8,333 a month. So one way you could look at that is you could diversify into 30 different deals over time. I'm not saying instantly on day one, just make that your goal. I'm gonna do 30 different deals that are cash flow positive and each are producing about $280 per month. That still gets you to 100,000 per year, you know? So that's kind of the reverse engineer uh, engineering that I do. And I do the same thing with like a health goal. So if your health goal was, I gotta lose 30 pounds. Well, that's a big, feet for a lot of people, you know, that's not easy to do. But if you take 30 and divide by 12, that's 2.5 pounds per month, right? So it makes it much more achievable and it can keep you on track versus just getting burned out after two or three weeks saying, I'm not seeing any results. I don't know how I'm going to lose 30 pounds, break it up in small tranches. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. that that's a pretty cool idea. I, I wouldn't break 1.2 million into 30 investments. That's a, that's a few a few too many, but conceptually, sure. uh, the point is well taken that uh, you're not looking to get the target yield in every investment. And the other the other point that I'll add to this whole philosophy is investors write multiple checks. You have to be prepared that something will underperform substantially and something right. will outperform substantially and something will perform more or less where the projections are. Yep. So adjusting for that on average, that, that's a good goal, but also the timing matters, right? If you invested that money over time, not in one transaction. So we, we are yeah. entering, well, we've entered the environment of high interest rates and getting 8% yield today is not trivial. But if you spread over multiple years, there will be times where entering uh, the market with a high yield and that will be fairly easy. So. Yeah, there's a group I invested with in probably 2015, 2016, right? But, and again, to use that example earlier, it had about an 8% annualized cash flow when we purchased it. And they have not sold the property intentionally. This is a group that doesn't anticipate to exit their deals, at least not for a long time. 
So that cash flow yield today is like 14, 15% annualized. So it's having some of that stuff in your portfolio and then adding some new things today that can help keep that allocation and that average. So let's cover this. This is an interesting point, um, what you just mentioned. Now, there are groups, and I've seen this, who project 10-year holding time frame and so on. Mm -hmm. Most investors, it's very hard bullet to bite to hear that their money will be liquid for 10 years. Now, yeah. there's nothing fundamentally wrong with a great investment. On the contrary, if you, if you deploy your capital with the great operators, you can ride yeah. the wave for more than 10 years. But yeah. how does... Uh, in your opinion, investors, how should investors should think about this? Should they yeah. be uh, prepared to go in for 10 years or is it better to go in into a deal that has four or five year horizon and might wind up taking longer? Or yeah. do you do both? Do you do some deals that are two, three, four or five years and then some deals that have 10 year horizon? Because what happens if <laughs> you put the money for into a deal and it doesn't go well and it has 10 year horizon, you may yeah. be stuck underperforming for a long period of time. Yeah, well, it's the benefit of diversifying. And I think that answer is uh, going to be different for everybody. And it depends on you and your time horizon and your age and your risk tolerance and the operator who we're talking about. But so I do both. But I made an episode about six months ago on my podcast called The Velocity of Capital. And I ran the math on doing something like the deal I described that's, say, going up 1% a year on average in cash flow terms versus these three to five-year timeframes where you put money in, you add value, and you exit and hopefully have some equity gains on the backside. And even including the taxes and everything else, assuming you don't 1031 exchange, it is a higher net return doing that business model to turn and burn or however you want to phrase it in three to five years and rinse and repeat that. And that's mostly what I do, by the way. But that being said, I like to have a little bit of surety and security as someone who lives full time on cash flow to have some of those longer term plays so that let's say something crazy happens next year in the economy and multifamily uh, doubles or something, right? So we we exit and we sell everything. Well, now, you know, what if the yields go down to 3%, right? Now my whole portfolio is going to be a 3% return. <laughs> so I kind of like staggering it that way. But um, pros and cons, you know, every business is different. I think the popular choice is if you're going to do value add, it's to do these three to five year plays. I think on average, it takes about that long to renovate 200, 300, 400 units and to exit a deal. And um, so something to keep in mind, you know. Yeah, it's a great point. And what happens is uh, you don't, as, as an LP, folks who, who, who are listening to this as they write checks, they don't control exit point. Typically it's controlled by right. the sponsor or the operator. Right. They may choose to exit during the best times on the market, or they may choose to exit based on their own uh, circumstances. It's kind of an interesting philosophical discussion and you mentioned previously, this is the last year of 100% uh, bonus depreciation, unless the Congress renews it. Right. So uh, most of the LPs try to do the, the best they can to plan, um, but there's a little bit of that being at the mercy of the sponsor and the operator. And most prudent sponsors don't just sell to take their promote and feel great about that. Typically, there has to be another opportunity to uh, reinvest the money. It's almost, if you ask the question, why to sell? In my view, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, my yeah. view, the only reason to sell is typically you maximize value add. And by selling, you, 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 are, you have the place to deploy the cash. 
So yeah. effectively, you're not trying to sell just to, just to, to, to create tax liabilities. You're trying to sell to potentially deploy the money into the next deal that can generate better returns. Otherwise, maybe it's a better opportunity to refinance. Of course, the interest rates make a big difference too. There yeah. are times when the refi makes a lot of sense and there are times when the sale event is the right type of uh, exit strategy. Yep. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, my thoughts are this. If we go back to that deal example of the group who never technically projects to sell, so say they're in a deal for 10, 15 years, I've already seen this occur in my portfolio. Think about it. You you raise the capital for the down payment. You raise the capital for the renovations up front, right? And you don't want to have too much cash drag, meaning that you have more capital allocated just sitting around in cash, not earning anything. So you spend it. The down payment goes to the the, the lender. The renovations get spent. So now, to your point, you've kind of maximized the value of that property using the resources you have. So let's say you keep holding it for 10 years. What do you think happens with real estate over 10 years, right? It ages, the, the roofs start to leak, you know, the HVAC systems go out, you need to redo the units again. Now the appliances are 10 years old. So how do you get the money? When a private placement, you, you could do a capital call, you could call your investors and say, put more money in, no one really likes that. Um, you could refinance to your point, but only in a time that it makes sense to refinance. If you're, if you got a 3% mortgage, you don't want to refi at 8%. There's not going to be any equity there, you know, or very little to do that, or you're going to have to sell the property, right? So it kind of puts you in a little bit of a bind. Additionally, most of these loans have an interest only period, and then that runs out and you may have to start um, amortizing or getting a new loan, right? And so that can drag your cash flow down. So it's not to say that's the best model out there. I mean, it's one choice, but just recognize that a reason a lot of people turn these properties that quickly are for these reasons. And so they can just give back the maximum amount of equity uh, and cash flow to their investors and move on and rinse and repeat the same process. It's something I used back when I did single family homes for about six and a half years, fix and flips, vacation rentals, even the homes I lived in. I would use the tax code to my advantage. I would live in the home for two years or whatever you have to do as an owner occupant. I would fix it up and I would sell for a higher price and I would move and I would live in the next place two or three years or whatever the rules are. So uh, to avoid taxes is what that is on your owner occupied home. So it's just been a model that has resonated with me my whole life. Even back to childhood, my parents would teach me about buying a car private party, not from a dealership, one that maybe needs a little bit of work and or it's in bad shape or it had a, a fender bender. So the value is going to be down. Maybe it's a salvage title. You buy it, you fix it up, you make it nice again, you use it. And then a lot of times in, in our experience, we could sell that car two, three years later for the same price that we paid for it before. So pretty cool strategy. Not a lot of people think of it that way as compared to buying a $50,000 car from the dealership that just starts depreciating day one and just goes down to 15 by the time you sell it. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Travis. I appreciate your wisdom. And thank you for sharing. Um, how would folks get a hold of you if they'd like to learn more and you have your own podcast as well? What's the sure. best way to, re to reach out? 
Uh, Instagram and Facebook, you can find me at Passive Investor Tips or you know LinkedIn and Bigger Pockets, other forums like that. Travis Watts, and then uh, if you want to book 15 minutes on my uh, calendar, you can go to AshcroftCapital.com forward slash Travis. That's never any kind of upsell or anything. That's just where I put my calendar link. So uh, if you just want to learn more about passive investing in general, I'll be happy to share and dive deeper with your uh, scenario. Thank you, Travis. I really appreciate your wisdom and your great nuggets. And, and uh, looking forward to having you back on the podcast again. And um, enjoy the rest of the year. We're going to holiday season. Hope you have an awesome holidays. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.